Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 53. Love and Death. The course of true love never runs smooth in classical mythology, or at least only very rarely. For every tale with a happy ending, there are ten with sad ones. The tale of Pygmalion, which we heard in the last chapter, may have ended well, but the three stories which we will hear today do not. In the city of Sestos lived a young woman called Hero. She was a well-mannered, dutiful and pious girl, and took her duties very seriously. This was handy, as she was a priestess of the goddess of love, Venus. Sestos was on one side of the narrow stretch of water known as the Hellespont. On the other side was the city of Abydos, and there lived a young man by the name of Leander. One day there was a festival in Sestos, and Leander, along with many of the inhabitants of Abydos, went over to check it out. When he was in Sestos, Leander met a beautiful young priestess. Hero was quite taken with the young man, but she was a priestess, and so she couldn't have a boyfriend. Not only that, Hero's parents were extremely proud of their daughter's achievements, and would have been horrified if they knew she was thinking about a man. Inevitably, as otherwise this wouldn't be much of a love-and-death story, the two fell in love. Leander wanted to marry Hero, but there was no way her parents were going to allow it. Instead, the two lovers decided to meet every night. This wasn't an easy thing to do, as the Hellespont is a sizeable stretch of water. Neither of them had boats, and of course there were no other forms of transport available. The only way Hero and Leander could see each other was if Leander swam the channel, so this he did. Hero lit a lamp in her window every night, so Leander would be guided to his destination. This arrangement worked fine. The two lovers met every day, and Leander probably got very fit indeed. Spring turned to summer, and their love blossomed. Summer turned to autumn, and it just continued to grow. All went swimmingly, until autumn began to turn to winter. Swimming across the Hellespont was not as much fun in the cold, wet winter weather, but Leander hardly even noticed. It was not until a devastating storm blew through the icy waters that things went horribly disastrously wrong. As the storm came in, Leander wondered whether it was too dangerous, but he couldn't bear the thought of not seeing his beloved hero. Praying to the gods, he dived into the frigid waters as usual. The storm was stronger than anything the area had seen for many years. The wind swirled uncontrolled and unpredictable. The currents in the water were alien and powerful. Worse than all of this, the winds had blown their way up and around Hero's house and to her window. The lamp stood no chance. The flame was extinguished, and poor Leander lost his bearings completely. Swimming against the horrible current, blown this way and that by the terrible winds and without a light to guide him, Leander had no chance. Hero waited up until dawn, but her love never arrived. The waves had taken him. In the morning, the storm had died down, and Hero went down to the shore to look for Leander. As she stood gazing out to sea, his lifeless body washed up on the shore. Hero, driven mad with grief, ran up the steps to the top of her tower, where she lived, and flung herself off. At last the two lovers could be together. They dwelled forever, unparted, in the underworld. One couple who managed to do what Hero and Leander never could was Cephalus and Procris. Hero and Leander never succeeded in getting married, but Cephalus and Procris were happily married for many years, before things started to go wrong. As is frequently the case in classical mythology, the trouble was caused by one of the gods. This time, 
The guilty party was the goddess of the dawn, Aurora. The lovely goddess, who could have had her choice of the available mortals, decided she wanted Cephalus. He, though, was not remotely interested. He was madly in love with Procris, and had no wish to be with anybody else, even a goddess. When she asked him to go with her, he said no. She said yes. And when she said yes, she meant it. Against his wishes, Aurora carried the poor helpless Cephalus off to her home. They were not happy. Cephalus did nothing but speak about Procris and how great his life had been. He told Aurora about his wedding day and what a great time everyone had had. He told her how much he longed to be with his young wife. Before too long, Aurora began to get very, very bored, hearing about how great everything had been before her capture. Not long after that, she threw in the towel. Aurora expelled Cephalus from her abode, but she didn't let him go without leaving him with a curse. Keep your Procris, you ungrateful clown, but you will forever doubt her. And she was right. When Cephalus got back to earth, he still loved his wife, but he was worried she no longer loved him. In fact, he worried she was seeing somebody else. She wasn't, of course, but Aurora's powers were strong. Cephalus decided he needed to test his wife's love for him. Instead of returning directly to his home and his happy marriage, he disguised himself and set out to test his wife. Cephalus, heavily disguised, went to see his wife. Many days and weeks he spent trying to persuade her to become his girlfriend. He bought her flowers and presents. He wined and dined her. He told her he would give her power and wealth if she went with him. Procris simply declared, very sadly, that she loved her husband and was not interested in anybody else. She knew her husband would return one day and she was going to wait for him. No amount of dinners, gifts or promises would change her mind. Cephalus should have left it there. He had the proof he needed that his wife was entirely faithful to him. He should have left it alone. He should have returned to her and continued to live his life in peace and happiness. Of course, he didn't. He kept on going when he should have stopped. Eventually, he offered Procris such a huge gift that just for a moment she wavered. Just for a brief fraction of a second, she hesitated. This was enough for Cephalus. He threw off his disguise and shouted at his wife in bitter triumph. Behold the man who has proved your shameful treachery. Your absent husband has returned to this. Procris, enraged by this imaginary faithlessness, and also hating Cephalus for the trick he had played, ran away to the mountains. There she hunted wild game in the company of the goddess Diana, who taught her the skills she needed to catch enough to eat. Cephalus, hating himself for what he had done, lived miserably in his palace until he could take it no more. He determined to climb into the hills and find his wife. And find her he did. He fell to his knees and begged forgiveness. He told her he was totally, completely, 100% in the wrong, which of course he was. He begged and pleaded with her to return home with him. Procris made him sweat for a bit, but she was still very much in love with him, and the outcome was inevitable. Procris and Cephalus returned to their palace and resumed their happy relationship. When Procris came down from the mountain, she brought with her two gifts from Diana. One was a hound which was quicker than any other animal and could never fail to catch its prey. The other was a magical javelin that could never fail to hit the target. Cephalus and Procris used both gifts wisely. Around the Greek city of Thebes roamed a terrible beast known as the Timesian Vixen. The fox was fierce and terrifying, and was frightening the people of the city. 
The cattle belonging to the local farmers were being slaughtered, and life was miserable. Cephalus turned up with the hound of Diana, which he had given the name Tempest. The dog was incredibly quick, and it caught up with the startled vixen in no time. It couldn't quite catch it, though. The two beasts, both created by the gods, were almost equal, and the chase seemed like it would go on for ever. Seeing that the chase may never end, the gods turned both animals into statues. The people of Thebes were saved. Cephalus used his magical javelin to hunt. He always went hunting alone, as he didn't need any help. Why would you need any help hunting when you have a javelin which can't miss its target? Many years passed, and the couple lived happily together. Day after day Cephalus hunted, and he always brought home a sumptuous feast. Before he came home, once he had caught his prey, Cephalus would rest. He would lie down in the shade and pray for a cool breeze. He would cry out for the breeze, shouting, Aura, come to me. Little did the unfortunate Cephalus know he was being spied on. A man, clearly with too little to do, heard him call for Aura every day and assumed he was calling for a nymph. Down in the town went the ill-informed spy and spread the rumour that Cephalus was seeing someone else when he was on his lone hunting trips. Inevitably, the rumour reached the ears of poor Procris. This time it was the lady's turn to have doubts. This time it was the lady who made up her mind to find out if her partner was up to something. She wasn't going to believe it until she saw it with her own eyes, so one day she set out to follow Cephalus as he went hunting. Cephalus did his usual thing. He threw his unerring javelin and killed his prey, and then he lay down in the sun and tried to summon a cool breeze. Aura, come to me, he called. Procris was hidden a little way away. She couldn't see her husband, but she could hear him. Procris's world collapsed around her in an instant. This was all the proof she needed that her husband had another woman. Just like poor Pyramus, she jumped to a conclusion, completely the wrong conclusion, and tragedy was the result. Unlike Pyramus, though, she caused her catastrophe accidentally. All she did was let out a low, sad, pitiful moan. Cephalus heard the moan. Not knowing that his wife was hiding in the undergrowth spying on him, he thought he had heard the sound of a wild animal. Not taking any chances, he immediately launched his infallible javelin in the general direction of the sound. He stood up wearily and wandered over to the place where he saw his javelin land. When he got there, he saw what it was that he had hit. The javelin was sticking out of the chest of his poor wife. Procris was alive, but only just. She told him she knew about his aura, and she hoped he had been happy. As her life slipped away, Cephalus told her the truth. Just before she died, a look of contentment came across her face. She didn't say anything, but Cephalus knew she had heard. Cephalus lived on without his wife, terribly sad, but at least confident in the knowledge that she, had, she knew he had been faithful to her. King Caux was the son of the Morning Star. He was married to the love of his life, Queen Halcyone, daughter of Aeolus, Lord of the Winds. The king needed to consult with the oracle at Delphi, as he often did and he went to tell his wife he was to travel across the sea to receive his messages. Normally, this didn't bother Halcyone at all. Consulting oracles was standard practice. This time, though, Halcyone seemed troubled. This time she seemed to have something on her mind. Her face went the colour of the whitest boxwood, and her cheeks were wet with tears. "'What's wrong, my love?' asked Kyx. "'I'm very afraid,' she replied. "'I'm very afraid you'll be shipwrecked and die.' 
Recently, I have seen some broken planks wash up on our seashore, and I've dreamt and read the names of sailors on their empty tombs. I think it's a sign. Don't be comforted by the fact that Aeolus is your father-in-law. The sea can take you at any time. Please don't go, or if you must go, take me with you. I don't want to be parted from you. Keux knew that he must take the trip, and he didn't want to put his wife in any danger. I'll miss you, my dear, he said. I will come back safely within two months. Not wanting to wait, and certainly not wanting to lose his bravery, Keux immediately ordered that a ship was prepared. Before many more hours had passed, he and his crew had set sail for Delphi. The king had a sense of foreboding, but he put it out of his mind. He simply assumed it was his wife's worries transferring themselves to him. As the boat sailed away, Halcyone watched it depart with tears in her eyes. He waved to her, and she returned the gesture. She watched the ship sail away into the distance until it was just a tiny speck on the horizon, and then she turned away. She walked home and lay on a couch, convinced she would never see her husband again. Halcyone had good reason for the feelings of dread. The weather was dreadful, and it got worse. By the time land was out of sight, the ship was smashed on all sides by raging seas and a vicious storm. The sea was white with spray, and the violence of the east wind pulled the mast down to the waves. The captain realised the winds would blow the sails to the sea and capsize the ship, so he ordered that the sails be dropped. It was too late. The storm was so strong that the sand from the bottom of the sea coloured the roaring waves. The captain did his best, but the men were too frightened and the storm too powerful. The ship was tossed into the air and came back crashing on the black, white and yellow sea. Every attempt to do battle with the weather had failed, and the courage of the sailors dissolved. With every coming wave, death seemed to rush in upon them. One sailor cried while another fell down, stupefied. Yet another prayed, begging trusted gods and lifting up his hands to the heavens unseen, while another named his children and his home, hoping that simply by naming them he would see them again. King Kyux thought only of Halcyone. He was glad she was safe at home. He was still thinking about her when the fatal final wave hit the ship. It was smashed to small useless pieces and everyone was thrown into the sea. Kyux and many of the men tried to swim, but the sea swallowed them all. Within a few minutes, nobody was left. Every last one of them was dead. Halcyone waited the two months, not knowing that Kyux had drowned. She prayed to Juno for his safe return, long after his safe return was no longer an option. Juno herself could not bear the sight of this poor woman continuing to pray for the safety of her already dead husband, and she commanded Iris to visit the god of sleep Morpheus. With her she took a message. Morpheus took it and knew what he had to do. Morpheus, carried on the wings of dreams, flew to the city where Halcyone prayed every day. He took a few moments to change his appearance, and then he entered the palace. There he stood before Halcyone. Halcyone looked up and gasped. Before her stood her husband, devoid of any colour and with seawater dripping from his beard. It wasn't Kyux, of course, it was Morpheus. The god of sleep spoke. Do you recognise me, or do I look different in death? It's your husband, or at least the ghost of your husband. Give up your hopes of my return, your faithful prayers will not be answered. The ship was dashed to pieces and went down with all on board. There were no survivors. Arise and shed your tears. I must be given a funeral so I can descend to the underworld properly. 
When the sun rose the following morning, Halcyone went down to the seashore, and wretchedly stood upon the spot from which he had sailed. As she watched, the body of her husband floated towards the seashore. Halcyone held out her trembling hands towards the body. Then she began to wave them up and down. Then she started to fly. Her lips turned into a beak, and her arms became wings. She reached the body of her husband, and kissed him with her slender new bill. Whether he felt her kisses or not, the gods felt pity. They turned both Halcyon and Kix into kingfishers. Every winter, the two kingfishers came together, and the gods calmed the seas. For fourteen days everything was calm and restful, and these days of peace and calm came to be known as Halcyon Days. Next week, I'm on a business trip to Hong Kong, so there won't be an episode until two weeks' time. So, until then, have a great fortnight, and I'll speak to you next time.